Good morning, church. My name is Melissa Hobbs, and I am honored this morning to be reading from the book of Isaiah, uh, chapter 49, verses 1 through 7. Listen, O isles, unto me, and hearken ye people from afar. The Lord hath called me from the womb, from the bowels of my mother hath he made mention of my name. And he hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand hath he hid me, and made me a polished shaft, in the quiver hath he hid me. And said unto me, Thou art my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Then I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for naught, and in vain. Yet surely my judgment is with the Lord, and my work with my God. And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb, to be his servant, to bring Jacob again to him, though Israel be not gathered, yet shall I be glorious in the eyes of the Lord, and my God shall be my strength." And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Thus saith the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to him whom man despiseth, to him whose the nation abhorreth, to a servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes also shall worship, because of the Lord that is faithful, and the Holy One of Israel, and he shall choose thee. Thank you so much. Good morning. So hopefully now we've found our way towards Isaiah chapter 49, looking at verses 1 through 7 that were read to us. So you're looking this morning at the second of four songs of the servant. The servant is a title that's given to the Messiah in the Old Testament. This is a very powerful selection of songs that's been offered to you, offered to me, eight centuries prior to the understanding of the fact that Jesus Christ came into this world, born in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. Now you pull all this together and you realize eight centuries prior, you are dealing with something of profound significance. I want you to notice the detail involved in this prophetic statement here. It comes down to the essence of what Christ is all about. We're going to be exploring that together. But first of all, we're going to pause and we're going to look to our Lord in prayer. Father, now, for those that are in this building in first, second service, for those that are involved with the online gathering, what we're now finding is globally, we're praying that in a very unique, distinctive way that you would minister to hearts, minister to needs, not only during this time, but in future viewings of days to come. So, Father, these moments are important. We're dealing with what matters most. <clears throat> We're dealing with who matters most. Jesus Christ. So, Father, we're attentive to who you are. Alert to what it is you're doing. 
transform these hearts. Engage these minds. And shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus, him only. Praying these things again now in, in Jesus' name. Amen. David Jeremiah, in one of his blogs, tells this story. A group sets out on a journey, accompanied by a servant, Leo. Leo, their servant, is a powerful presence. Leo performs all the menial tasks, but also encourages and motivates by his spirit. But one day, Leo disappears. The group falls apart. The journey is abandoned. Years later, one of the members encounters Leo and discovers that he is the powerful leader of the organization that originally sponsored the journey. It was that story that Robert Greenleaf found to be inspiring. And so he established and founded the modern servant leadership movement. Books have been written. Volumes penned with regard to the whole idea of servant leadership. What you and I are now exploring in the second of this four-part series in Advent is the ultimate servant leader, the one we know as Jesus Christ. But again, what I want you to be able to seize is the significance of the fact that these words were penned eight centuries prior to Christ's coming. Yet you're going to be able to make some direct correlations to what are found here in these verses. And so, for those that live in a day of uncertainty, when you're trafficking among people day in, day out, wondering what tomorrow is going to hold, what the winter is going to look like, and so on, I want you to be able to sense the certainties that come with sovereignty. God's sovereignty, who demonstrates that if he could pen something eight centuries prior, all of which would come to fruition, that we can entrust these weeks, these months, these years, into the hands of the one who knows best. So I want to draw out for you this morning three significant observations that are found in this text. The first comes out of verses 1, down through verse 4. We're going to pen it like this. That as you and I, as we reflect upon the Messiah, which this passage refers to as the servant of the Lord, we're going to begin by noting, first of all, the description provided of the servant. And we're going to pick it up at the very first verse. And he says, listen to me. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord God called from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Did you capture all that? Now, at the very onset, what I want you to be able to see here is that what we find Isaiah doing is that he is saying there is something that extends far beyond Israel at this point. 
This is not merely national. This is international. This is global. He says, listen to me, O coastlands. But when he says listen, he's using a very unique word at this point that's found in the original language. It carries with the idea of listen to me intently. The very same concept which was used to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Mark chapter 9, where in verse 7, after his glory was revealed on that mount, what you'll find are these words echoing out of the heavens with regard to the fact that this is God the Father's Son. Listen to him. So in a noisy culture, where there's a cacophony of speech, where it seems as though people are competing to have their voices heard, what we need now is a singular focused attention upon not only what is said about Jesus, but also what Jesus says about himself. Stories told of an Indian who was in downtown New York. He was walking along a street with his friend who lived in New York City and suddenly he said I hear a cricket you're crazy said the friend I hear a cricket I am certain it's the noon hour people are bustling about here cars honking taxis are squealing noise from the city you can't hear a cricket I do. He listened attentively and then walked to the corner, across the street, looked all around. Finally, on the other corner, he found a shrub and a large cement planter. Dug beneath the leaf and found a cricket. His friend was astonished. But the Indian said, you have to understand that my ears are no different from yours. It simply depends upon what you are listening to. Here, let me show you. So he reached into his pocket and pulled out a handful of change, a few quarters, some dimes, nickels, pennies, dropped them all on the concrete, and every head turned among the people that were passing by. See what I mean, he said? It all depends on what you're listening for. Now, we have a culture that is struggling when it comes to the matter of the cacophony of noise and sound, competing voices, people looking to gain attention for themselves and expressing themselves verbally to a great extent. But what I want you to hear now is the soft, quiet voice of the profound servant leader of all of humanity, a ruggedness about him, yet a quietness describing him. And not only does he make a statement to the locals, he is making a statement from coast to coast, from one island to the next, not merely nationally, internationally. Listen to me, O coastlands. Now you can almost sense at this point the need to begin to lean forward 
lean into the voice. Are you doing that this morning? Leaning into the voice of the one known as the word. And give attention, he says, you peoples from afar. Last week, we looked at Isaiah chapter 42, the first of the songs of the servant. It was written biographically. But now this, the second of the songs of the servant, this is written autobiographically. And so you and I are then told at this point, as both Jew and then therefore Gentile, are to be listening in. The Lord called me. Did you notice what comes next? From the womb. Have you ever pondered the significance of that pro-life statement? And have you considered the significance of life within the womb at that point where the Messiah within the womb of Mary, simultaneously John the Baptist within the womb of Elizabeth. John the Baptist leaps for joy within the womb of Elizabeth. While in embryonic form, there is Messiah within the womb of Mary. The Lord called me from the womb, and the forerunner was already acknowledging the calling. Before he hit the pavement of Palestine, if you will, sandaled feet and all, proclaiming the one, Messiah. There he is within the womb of Elizabeth, already making a proclamation to Elizabeth. And Luke, the physician, wants us to know that in his Lucan account. But now what you and I spot at this point is that with this calling within the womb, the Lord called me, this is autobiographical, eight centuries prior, now Messiah is stating this, from the body of my mother, he named, he named my name. Which means then at this point, God the Father, in that patriarchal time period, he was claiming fathership, naming the son within the womb of Mary. And then, therefore, Joseph was told, she will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus. But God the Father is telling Joseph what to name him. You shall name him, call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Mary would hear a similar story. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. What are both Joseph and Mary hearing simultaneously? In Jewish courts, it took two witnesses. Now you've got Joseph and Mary hearing the same thing from God the Father and his emissaries, his, his angels, if you will, saying at this point that this one that is within the womb of Mary, his name is to be known as Jesus, which means literally, God is our salvation. 
Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Moffat Barrett's South Carolina native, World War II vet, captain of a unit of paratroopers in the 82nd Airborne. It's 1993 when he decided to take a trip to Europe. He's going to visit the war zones of 50 years before. Arrived in Anzio, Italy, beautiful place. Went to the American cemetery there. Massive. Row upon row of white crosses, as far as one could see. Listen to this. Names. Names and dates on the grave markers. And fortunately, there was a directory in the reception building. And if you knew a man's name, you could locate the block row of his grave. I'm going to quote Barris's words now. I could recall exactly what they looked like. The sound of their voices. Things they had said. I visited each grave in turn, put my hand on the cool stone, read the name, birth date, death date. Back when they were killed, the rest of us had no time to grieve, but 50 years later, as I stood beside each grave, I wondered why I had survived and they had not. And then as I stood, pondering a particular name, I was moved to tears. What strikes you? If you knew a man's name, you could locate the block, locate the row of his grave. The block and the row of Messiah's grave is empty. His name's Jesus. He was named within the womb of Mary. Joseph and Mary were given perspective on that name. John the Baptist would attest to the fact that the call was already upon him within the womb. He would leap for joy within the womb of Elizabeth, already functioning as a forerunner. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. You're on now to verse 2. I want you to notice that in verse 2, while the Israelites are under the threat at this point of invasion of their nation, Isaiah uses two military metaphors to capture the attention of his readership so that they are forced to think seriously about this one, the servant, the promised Messiah. Circle them. Note them. He made my mouth like, and here is the first one, a sharp sword. What stands out to you at this point? Notice that it reads, it's his mouth that is made like a sharp sword. Why? God is the creator, all-powerful through his wording. He speaks and this world comes into existence. There is the sense of the beginnings of 
which the word dominates. But also at the very end. Because what you and I are told in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called the word of God. And yet just two verses later, in verse 15, we are told, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, piercing, incisive, convicting, powerful. Military metaphor at this very moment. You take seriously the word of the Lord, which is what we do week by week when we open up the text. And we ponder why this one, Messiah, was known, among other things, as the word of the Lord. At this juncture, though, he's referred to as the servant of the Lord. Made my mouth like a sharp sword. So you write within the text at this point, Revelation chapter 19. And you look those verses up. And you ponder the way in which militaristically God is communicating this one who is willing to break into the conflict of life to bring peace to your life. But then the second metaphor. He may be like a polished arrow in his quiver. In his quiver, he hid me away. He's incisive. He's piercing. And yet what is interesting is that when it says that he has been hid away, what he's doing then at that point is to offer us understanding that Yahweh, sovereign God, is preserving him, protecting him. In other words, God the Father's hand is upon God the Son in his mission. You're up now to verse 3, aren't you? We pause, then we dive back in. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son. It is a, an opportunity for you and me to listen in to the dialogue of the eternal ones. You are my servant. And before we can go any further, we have to pause and say, I wonder how he's going to be referenced. And then your eyes get bigger when the next word emerges. Israel. Israel. Now we said last week that when you and I are looking at this text of the songs of the servant, you've got to f allow it to function like your, that clock with a pendulum that swings back and forth between the singular and the plural, between the Israelites and the representative the ultimate representative of the Israelites, we know him as Jesus. Isaiah brilliantly moves back and forth between singular and plural. In this text, he's using the singular. And now he refers to the servant, Messiah, as Israel. What gives? Do you remember that account back in Genesis? Jacob, of course, is on a long journey, and he pauses, and God seizes his attention and informs him that no longer will he be known as Jacob, 
but as Israel. And Israel was to be a light to the nations. Now what we find here is that the ultimate representative of Israel, the servant we know as Jesus Christ, the one who came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many, you and I are now informed here at this point he said to me, this is the eternal dialogue, you are my servant, Israel. When he says my servant, what that tells me then is that Jesus was not going to pave his own way, choose his own roads, map out his own journey, but rather he came to fulfill the will of the Father. The role of the servant is not to bring glory to yourself, but to the master. Jesus, through his earthly ministry, leading the perfect life, brought glory to the Father, not to himself, even though he had every right to do so. He chose at the same time to humble himself as the form of a servant, as Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 down through verse 11. Take a deep breath. And then it says, in whom I will be glorified. He said to me, you are my servant Israel in whom I will be glorified. Second member bringing glory to the first member in a culture where everybody wants to give glory to themselves. Self-advertisement. Who's loudest in terms of what they can say about their latest achievement. And here's the quiet dignity of the servant who is making his way to the cross, onwards to resurrection, would it be any wonder then that initially there would be that sense of, what's the point of it all? People aren't listening. People aren't paying attention. They're viewing me as simply Joseph's son. Not the son of the heavenly father. The carpenter. Nazareth. So in verse 4 then, is it any wonder that he's struggling at this point where he says, I've labored in vain, not seeing the impact, the fruit, the results of all that I've attempted to do. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity, poetically described here. Now, people are looking for a sense of purpose, a sense of significance. Maybe you don't find that in your work. Some don't. You have so passionate about wanting to do something of significance for God. But at the same time, it seems like your vocation, your passion don't necessarily match. During a period of high unemployment, Irish government began an ambitious road building campaign. New jobs were being created, workers enthusiastically signed on. And they'd be able to feed their families while helping build their nation's road system. But then the motivation began to decline. They began to lose their excitement. Why? It's because they discovered the roads led to nowhere. The government-sponsored program, the road-building campaign, had simply been invented to create jobs. Reginald McDonald 
pondering what took place, wrote, the mission that had provided the workers with a sense of destiny was no longer a reality. The work was the same, but much of the meaning was gone. Not so with Messiah. Because note what comes next in this text. It's powerful. Yet surely. When it seems as though everything is a sense of vanity, you need a yet surely. You need a sense of renewed certainty that God is in control. When everything seems so futile, and you seem to be grasping for straws regarding the significance of life, of all that you're attempting to do, and you seem so wearied by the challenges that life is producing day in, day out, where you can almost find the wording within your own personal realm, I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Notice the next phrase. Grab it. Yet, surely. And you say, Gary, yet surely what? Notice what it says here. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. That phrase at this point stands out. When it says, surely my right is with the Lord, it carries with the idea of what is right to be decided about me. Don't let others make that decision about who you are. Jesus Christ was misinterpreted. Jesus Christ was misunderstood. The question is, will we hear, well done, good and faithful servant? Read on. My recompense with my God. What does that mean? The outcome of his work. Some walked away once he was placed in that grave, assuming all was done. Three days later, Christ raised from the dead. Recompense. The outcome of his work. Wrapped together with that phrase, surely my right is with the Lord, is the wisdom of God. Wrapped with my recompense with my God is the power of God it combines together, and now you've got a powerful description provided of the servant. So you listen to him. You ponder the twofold military metaphors of him. You get a sense of the certainty when everything seems to be vanity, and now you're ready to move forward. Because the verses 1 through 4 pertain to the description provided of the servant. Verses 5 and 6 pertain to the mission entrusted to the servant. Check it out. In verse 5, again, notice that it's uppercase, the Lord, so it's Yahweh. The Lord says, and now there's your Bethlehem story again, emerging eight centuries prior in this account. He who formed me from the womb talking embryonic form, to be his servant. And now what I want you to spot here is that this servant is about to multitask. 
And his task is twofold. One is national. The other is universal. Check it out. First, the national. First, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. My God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob? To bring back the preserved of Israel? Stop right there. Again, wonder why after century after century, all of a sudden the Israelites regain nationhood status in 1948. No Hittites to be found. No Jebusites to be found. Furthermore, ponder all the various empires that have come and gone. Babylonian, Greek, Roman. And all of a sudden, out of the supposed ashes, here comes Israel. Why? All of this sets up the return of Jesus Christ. All of this sets up the fact that God's promise is fulfilled, will be fulfilled. He is sovereign over all. What that means for you, it means for me then, that in the midst of the vanity of life, you've got the certainty of a promise-keeping God involved day in, day out. And if he can achieve that historically, if he can achieve that globally, he can work in your life personally. You see? Now, that's how you apply this. But I want you to see here is not only the national ramifications as it relates to the Israelites, but furthermore, the international application as it relates to the Gentiles, people like me, I will make you as a light for the nations. Now here are the Israelites feeling the pressure of invasion from outside forces. Eight centuries prior to Jesus Christ entering into Bethlehem, Isaiah is writing these words, and they're going to be dealing with the issues of the Assyrians, the issues of the Babylonians, the issues onward, Greeks, and then the Romans. But rather than turning inward, like so many people do when things seem to be going, getting hard, he wants them to turn outward. And maybe your light is flickering this weekend because of what you've experienced in 2020, 2019, 2018. Let it shine bright. Hanukkah is Thursday, and days follow. Chosen People Ministries has a tremendous presentation being offered online a week from today for children, adults, tune in. Yeshua, the light of the world, is the presentation by Chosen People Ministries. Carries with the idea of the, the role, the responsibility, the mission to illuminate the world with the idea that Jesus Christ is in fact Messiah in the midst of a culture that flickers. You're wrestling with your Christmas lights. You got them from the attic. They're in a box. You believe in, yeah, you've even probably used hair detanglers. Does anybody have 
a Christmas light detangler to be able to get all these things separated from one another. And then finally, you get them mounted and around the tree, and all they do is flicker. And you know you're going to have to find something new. Not so when it comes to Jesus. You don't have to look elsewhere. Nothing flickers here. He said, he said, I am the light of the world. It was 1959, New Zealander. Desmond Oatridge and his wife, Jennifer, from Australia, they began Bible translation work among the Benumerians of New Guinea. And this tribe had been ravaged by disease and attacks in the 1930s. 30 years later, they numbered only about 150 people. But nine years later, the Oatridges had their first translation, the Gospel of Mark, ready. First book of scripture, the Benumerians had seen in their own language. The printed Gospels arrived and they held a ceremony to celebrate the occasion. A Benumerian blindfolded with a black cloth headed a long line of literates proceeding through the village square to the place where Desmond was reading the translated gospel. Upon arriving, the man removed the blindfold, symbolizing that since the scriptures had come, his people were no longer in darkness. They've seen the light. The light shines in the darkness. Isaiah's readership understood this. They would go back chapters and find that back in chapter 8 to verse 22, they would look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, gloom of anguish. They will be thrust into thick darkness. But good news, because then two verses later, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So now we draw attention to the one who's the light of the world. And so here then, what you and I do is we get our arms around this passage that ends, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. This is a global statement yet has personal ramifications. And now you and I, you and I are ready for the third observation. Because verses 1 through 4, as we tie together this matter of the servant with the Messiah, in verses 1 through 4, there was the description provided of the servant. He's the servant. He's Jacob. Twofold metaphors, military, onward. And then we saw the mission of the servant. And there, out of verses 5 down through verse 6, it's both national and universal. But now you wrap it up. And I want you to see thirdly the honor received by the servant. It's all there in verse 7. And it pertains to what's still to come. Thus says the Lord. Did you notice now in each of the stanzas this morning? It's got the Lord speaking. Now in verse 7, thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, 
In other words, he's bringing them back to himself, his holy one. To one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, which Jesus Christ was. The servant of rulers. As he had to stand, the sovereign ruler, Jesus Christ, as he stood, king of the Jews as he was, as he stood before Pontius Pilate, as he stood before Herod, servant of rulers, look what comes next. Kings shall see and arise. But as soon as they stand up, they drop to their knees. Notice what comes next. Princes, they shall prostrate themselves. Why? You've got a promise keeping God on your hands here. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you, God the Father, to God the Son. And then there was the Apostle Paul, who once again would be able to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though in, he was in the form of God, did not con- count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by being coming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name. Didn't we cover that this morning? The name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Let's stand together. So our Lord, We're awed. In a culture of confusion, we traffic among people who are confused, where it seems like everything they're doing is simply in vain. You provided us with a description. You've given us an understanding of the true mission. Here's where true honor is received. When every knee bows, every tongue confesses, Jesus Christ, he alone, is Lord. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.